You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Blistering diseases. We're going to go through histology and pathophysiology because it is impossible, I don't care how smart you are, to understand blistering diseases and to actually memorialize the information without really understanding structure as function. We'll then go through the differential diagnosis by class the clinical findings of each of these disorders and how you work them up. I've got some answers, uh, question answers, the audience response system at the end of this. So let's breeze through because we're getting started a few minutes late. Structure as function. What causes a blister to form? So you either have to have disruption of the desmosomes, which again are the connectors between keratinocytes on the lateral surfaces and the top and bottom surfaces to one another. The hemidesmosomes, which attach keratinocytes at the basal layer to the basement membrane, or you have to have keratinocyte necrosis, meaning the cell dies, and by virtue of death, cell death of the keratinocyte, they can no longer support the infrastructural requirements to keep desmosomes or hemidesmosomes intact. That's how blisters form. So again, just a very nice artist's rendition. I'm going to move through some of these more quickly. Basic histology of the skin, your stratum corneum. Your epidermis, of course, with your granular cell layer up top, your suprabasilar or spinous cell layers here, and then your basal layer right at the DE junction, of course, sitting right on top of the dermis. So I am not technologically savvy, I will give you that. But I did try to make this to give you the representation of what we're seeing. Again, stratum corneum, keratinocytes, basement membrane, and then your dermis with blood vessels, nerves, ground substance, collagen, etc. So what we're going to talk about first is a, well, we're going to go through all of them, but we'll start out with a blister that's intraepidermal, meaning inside the epidermis, within the keratinocytes, breaking the keratinocytes apart. Later, we will talk about a subepidermal blister. So you would imagine that the basement membrane is sort of right here. And this blister would form by dissolution of the hemidesmosome, the attachment of the basal layer of keratinocytes from the basement membrane, the foundation of the epidermis attaching to the dermis. When that's disrupted, you have hemidesmosomal detachment and a subepidermal blister. Then they expand by virtue of pressure phenomenon throughout the tissue. So again, we're going to take this in cross-section. Superbasilar split, subepidermal blister, those will be terms you'll hear throughout this talk. The desmosome, illustratively, is the connection of two keratinocytes. You like, I like to think about it like chains in a chain link. And when you have the destruction of the hemi, I'm sorry, of the desmosomal proteins, any disruption, you get a blister. And I did do that myself, by the way. I was kind of pleased with that, by the way. Okay. So those desmosomal detachments can arise from three basic phenomenon. You either have an extracellular desmosomal target, so let's call it an antibody for ease of illustration, an antibody that hits the outside part of that chain link. The chain in the chain link, by the way, between the keratinocytes starts out inside one keratinocyte, goes across the membrane of that keratinocyte into the intercellular space, then goes across the membrane of the other keratinocyte into the intercellular space, I'm sorry, intracellular space. So it's going across the cells, both intracellular, intercellular, intracellular. So you can target the outside part, the intercellular part, which is called extracellular desmosomal target. You can have an intracellular desmosomal target. Any disruption in that chain along the chain link is going to cause the two keratinocytes to detach from one another. Or you can have keratinocyte cell death. Also, the cell death mechanism, meaning that you can't hold on to that chain link and the two cells separate. So the basal cells will remain intact, as you see here, and the cells within the epidermis will start to undergo what's called acantholysis, or spreading apart from one another. When that happens, fluid comes in secondarily by a passage of, sp of uh, space and, and um, path of least resistance, if you will. So again, another example histologically of suprabasilar Again, above the basal layer, acantholysis. So this is like what you would see in pemphigus, where the basal layer remains intact and the epidermal keratinocytes are detaching from one another. And we'll go all into pemphigus, but that would be an extracellular target of the desmosome. And this is another histologic example. The basement membrane I have outlined here in orange, it's just kind of folded on itself. But you can really readily see that the basal layer is remaining attached 
to the basement membrane, and yet the suprabasilar layer here, again, you'd have to fold this out, this tissue's folded on itself, um, are, those cells are go undergoing acantholysis or detachment from one another. The epidermis, and then again, it's folded, so I kind of depicted where the dermis would be. So that's a suprabasilar split. Now let's talk about the subepidermal blister that arises at the attachment between the epidermis and the dermis. Oops, let me go through that one more time. So the orange is to depict the basement membrane. And if you look at that basement membrane on a microscopic level, you'll see that the basement membrane itself is composed, comprised of several different components. So the basal keratinocyte has proteins here, which you'll learn are BP antigen 1 and 2, which cross through the basement, th I'm sorry, through the membrane of the cell in, and begin the basement membrane foundationally as the lamina lucida, lamina densa, and then we have the sublamina densa, which has collagen 7 and some other proteins in here. So the cleavage plane in, in subepidermal blisters is here. And as I mentioned, bullous pemphigoid antigen 1 and 2 are key components of this hemidesmosomal attachment. And the break here is, again, a subepidermal split. There are other autoimmune blistering diseases that attack laminin 5 and cause an, a subepidermal blister. Type 7 collagen is what you see in bullous lupus, uh, which, is, again, is a subepidermal blister. So several different things. We're not going to get to talk about them all, but we'll talk about the more common features. So subepidermal blister, all these basal keratinocytes are remaining attached to their keratinocyte friends, and the detachment happens at that conjunction of the epidermis to the dermis. Again, you can see the subepidermal blister here very cleanly. And I mentioned to you that cell death so you've got the desmosomal detachment, hemidesmosomal detachment, or keratinocyte cell death of either the basal layer keratinocytes or the suprabasilar keratinocytes, which if the cells die, they can't hold on to that chain link anymore, and cell death can cause either desmosomal or hemidesmosomal detachment. We'll talk about all of these as a cause of blistering in humans. So for basic categories within the differential diagnosis of blistering disorders, we have autoimmune, perineoplastic, infectious and drug reactions. So we're going to get started fairly quickly here. So autoimmune diseases. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to actually do all those. But we will do pemphigus vulgaris and bullous pemphigoid. And I'll go back just real quick to show you. The top five clustering disorders are supra epidermal, so these are within, I'm sorry, these are suprabasilar, so they are within the epidermis. Then we have the subepidermal, which are the latter six listed there. We're going to talk about the two most common in each category, pemphigus vulgaris and bullous pemphigoid. We'll start out with pemphigus. So again, the pemphigus etiology is intraepidermal, so within the epidermis, the keratinocytes begin to fall apart. They can detach from one another without there being any true keratinocyte necrosis. And this is due very specifically to antibodies that I've pointed to there are in the intercellular space in the chain link that attaches one keratinocyte to another, specifically the proteins desmoglein-3 in all patients with pemphigus vulgaris, and on occasion, in addition, desmoglein-1. Epidemiologically, pemphigus is e equal in, it, in who it affects, both males and females, tends to be uh, an onset in the middle to early adult years, more adult years, 50 to 60, and the incidence rates are listed there, more, most common in the Ashkenazi population. These lesions tend to be very fragile. Again, if you think about the desmosomal detachment being the key pathophysiologic mechanism, it's literally like the epidermis is just shearing itself apart. So they're painful, they're fragile or flaccid, and they tend to move laterally if they get compressed. You can move that fluid and push by a pressure phenomenon through the adjacent keratinocytes, which are yet still intact. You can actually move it through. Mucosal erosions are present in approximately 100%, and I say 100% because if they haven't yet had them, they're going to. Um, desmosome, uh, the attack of the desmoglein-3 which is present throughout the entirety of the epidermis and the mucosa, requisite, will be affected. And cutaneous blisters arise in uh, upwards of 50% of these patients. 
And you can see this very flaccid looking blister on the upper right. Um, it, you know, it's literally lost most of the epidermis now. And then on the, uh, the lower image, you can see this sort of flaccid kind of hanging dependent fluid and the loss of surface, of course, along the, the larger ulceration. So skin biopsy is key. H&E of lesional skin, DIF of perilesional skin. And why perilesional? Because in blistering disorders, you're looking for direct immunofluorescence of the patient's own antibodies they, they rendered against their own skin tissue. And in the setting of a blister, there's been such a subsequent inflammatory change that you wash off or break down many of those antibodies. And so you're far less apt to get the answer that you're looking for. You basically just are taking tissue that wouldn't house the antibodies anymore. So perilesional and blistering diseases. And IgG should really be seen in nearly 100% of those patients. You can also do serologies. You can look for indirect immunofluorescence or ELISA, looking actually for desmoglein-1 and desmoglein-3 protein as, uh, antibodies in the patient's own sera. And there are only a few dermatologic diseases by which you can follow the quantitative levels of ELISA or antibodies in someone's serum and use that as a prognostic indicator as to what's going to happen. It's double-stranded DNA in lupus and it's the desmoglein 1 and 3 in pemphigus. Quantitatively, those numbers tell you something about the disease course, much more predictively than any quantitative assessment of antibodies in any other disease conditions in dermatology. So now we're shifting gears away from pemphigus vulgaris, the intraepidermal disease to bullous pemphigoid, the subepidermal blistering disease. So this has a, of course, a subepidermal split, the absence of epidermal necrosis. So cells are not dying per se, they're just deciding to separate. And this is due to autoantibodies to basement membrane proteins in that hemidesmosome, bullous pemphigoid antigen 2 and bullous pemphigoid antigen 1, respectively, that is uh, BP180 and BP230. And that's, they're named those numbers by their weights, molecular weights. Uh, so we're looking right here, and I had shown you in this image before that when you get disruption of these proteins, then they do not stay adhered to the basement membrane. This is a fully intact epidermis separating itself from a fully intact dermis. And what do you have in here? You have the transitation of fluid, again, based on the gradation of pressure. Fluid will go to the space where there is no pressure. Um, and that is just sera, coupled with a lot of eosinophils common in bullous pemphigoid. Tense blisters. These blisters are not flaccid. They are not something you will move. So this tells us that the hemidesmosomal attachment in the skin unaffected is much more strong than the desmosomal attachment in what clinically looks like unaffected skin in pemphigus. Because in pemphigus, you could push this laterally and get it to spread, to break through the natural biology, the natural um, molecular biology of the, of the desmosomes being intact. Here, the rest of the skin adjacent to the blister is actually attached to its basement membrane, and you can't change that by pushing on it. Bullous pemphigoid is the most common autoimmune blistering diseases, affecting about seven in every one million person population per year. Tends to affect men more often than women and is considered a disease of the elderly, so slightly younger population in the age bracket of 50 to 60 in pemphigus, whereas pemphigoid tends to be in those in the seventh decade or greater. These lesions are, by definition, very, very, very pruritic. They itch. So you'll see other signs like excoriations on the patient. You may see areas that look like they're almost urticarial. We call that pre-bullous or urticarial BP. Uh, the blisters, again, are tense. There's no lateral movement. And these patients with standard bullous pemphigoid, we're not talking about mucous membrane pemphigoid and all those other things, these patients will lack mucosal involvement. And there tends to also be um, a considerable uh, association between other autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and lupus, as well as malignancy, which we question whether or not it's just age, um, and even neurologic diseases such as MS or ALS. A skin biopsy, of course, is key, and DIF perilesionally should be able to detect both C3 and IgG at the basement membrane. Again, you can do serology, indirect immunofluorescence, which is taking the patient's blood, sending it to a lab, and having them put it onto different types of media, rat bladder and 
monkey esophagus and all these things. I don't know who figured that out. But anyway, um, and the ELISA that you can do looking at BP-180 and BP-230, so the actual quantitative assessment of antibodies in one's blood. Very sensitive and specific. So we've been through autoimmune. We're going to hit perineoplastic next. I talked a little bit about perineoplastic pemphigus in my challenging cases in inpatient and outpatient dermatology. And I mentioned to you that they tend to have this varied morphology. So you'll see patients clinically might have flaccid blisters, tense blisters, erythema multiforme, or lichen planus-like papules. That's common that you'll see variations in the same person of several different morphologic presentations. And indeed as well, they get that intractable stomatitis. So you see that type of stomatitis and you have to think of perineoplastic pemphigus. Um, I call this the wastebasket of antibodies because these patients are just elaborating so many antibodies. It's to plakins, uh, which are intracellular. That's the inside part of the keratinocyte chain link are the plakins. The, to the extracellular components, the desmoglians, and as well to the bullous pemphigoid antigens. So here, on, the, on your left, you'll see this is the hemidesmosomal structure, the bullous pemphigoid antigen one and two, and some plakins and plectins are here. So it hits any of this. This is the in, intracellular keratinocyte component, and it is attacking the plakins. This is the desmosomal desmoglians and the intercellular component. So, so in perineoplastic disease, they're hitting all of this, which is why clinically you'll see several different morphologies. And again, the intractable stomatitis. So perineoplastic pemphigus arises in patients with a pre-existing malignancy about two-thirds of the time, or it can be the primary presentation of their malignancy a third of the time. And the most common types of malignancies are non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, CLL, Castleman's tumor, thymomas, and Waldenstrom's making up the balance. And just remember, thymomas are not really considered, they're a lympho, B-cell lymphoproliferative disorder, but not truly a malignancy. Okay, this is another gentleman uh, with perineoplastic pemphigus, again, intractable stomatitis, terrible, terrible, terrible oral mucosal involvement. And he has a presentation on his body that looks actually on the trunk like it's mostly lichenoid. He has inflammatory lichenoid papules. Just as a reminder, it can look like pemphigus, pemphigoid, EM, or lichenoid papules. And all of the above can be present in one patient, perineoplastic disease. Now we're gonna talk about infectious causes of blistering diseases. So there are basically two categories. We have either viral infections with herpes or we have bacterial infections with a form of staph. We're gonna start out with herpes. Clinically distinct, several different presentations do exist of herpetic eruptions. Herpes, HHV 1, 2, and 3, respectively, is representative of HSV1, HSV2, and VZV. Again, that is to say that VZV is also known as herpes, human herpes virus, HHV3. These are DNA tropic viruses. That means that they actually go into the nucleus, DNA tropic, they, they go into the nucleus of a cell and cause necrosis. Why does that matter? Because I was telling you that the way you get blisters are either desmosomal detachment, hemidesmosomal detachment, one of the two, and that can happen by either antibodies hitting those structures or by cell necrosis happening. Cell necrosis happens in herpetic viruses because they're DNA tropic and they induce cell death. Under the microscope, you cannot tell the difference between HHV1, HHV2, or HHV3. So you cannot tell the difference between any of the herpes simplex types or the varicella zoster type under a microscope. You can see in the microscopic images here as well that these cells are undergoing acantholysis. They are separating from one another, but they are also dying. So these cells do not look healthy. And these are cells infected with a human herpes virus that are just undergoing a, a programmed cell death now that the her human herpes virus has programmed it to do so by intercalating into the DNA. And again, I did this by myself, and I was pretty happy. So this is your herpes virus going into the DNA, right, causing the cell to die. As it does so, the desmosomes no longer stay attached, and then the cells detach from one another, which is called acantholysis, and fluid fills in to take up the, the occupants of space. So the epidemiology of HSV 1 and 2, encountered by over 20% of five-year-olds, that's a little scary. 
Uh, but herpes genital infection is still remains the most common STD worldwide. HSV2 represents the majority of that HSV1, much less so. And the HSV1 and 2 life cycle are very similar to one another. You start out with a primary infection that you never 100% clear. So you will then latent, as a latent form, have it residing in the dorsal ganglia. And actually, even without clinical evidence of disease or flare, there are documentations um, in, in several studies that many people that have HSV, have had a history, have asymptomatic viral shedding. What that means is that if you actually swab them at a time that they're not with active blisters, they actually can still communicate the disease, which is why it's probably, again, the most common sexually transmitted disease worldwide. And then reactivation or clinical recurrence, meaning the clinical evidence of a blister recurring, usually happens during times of stress, and it's usually preceded by a paresthesia. So not a true prodrome, you don't get fever and malaise, but you do get that tingling sensation wherever it's gonna come about um, just prior to the blister arising. And it tends to recur in the same cutaneous site. Uh, this goes into many of the things I just mentioned. The primary infection often accompanied by prodrome, fever, malaise, recurrent, not with a prodrome, but with a paresthesia. Uh, complications, so you can have an immunologic reaction to HSV in the form of erythema multiforme, not uncommon. You can have direct inoculation. The blister fluid is what houses the virus. So if you were to scratch your upper lip where you had a blister and then rub your eye, you can get herpes keratitis. That is not good. Uh, you can have neonatal transmission, most certainly, with involvement of the genitalia in a female at the time of parturition. And in our immunocompromised folk, we can get chronic ulcerations that just truly fail to heal because of cr chronically active herpetic involvement in the region, or worse, dissemination. And if you fear dissemination in an immunocompromised patient, encephalitis is usually the manifestation in its temporal lobe encephalitis. That's the classic, uh, that'll be a board question type question, but that's usually where it involves itself. Herpes zoster, 98% of, of people worldwide are actually VZV seropositive. 90% uh, will encounter the virus actually under the age of 10. And now that we have vaccines, we hope that that's more than 90% encounter the quote unquote virus, the inactivated virus in their vaccination. As you can see, the incidence rates increase of varicella zoster significantly over the course of the human life cycle with age. And it too has a sequence of a primary infection followed by a latency period. This is in true disease, of course, not in those that are vaccinated, followed by the reactivation phase. So primary infection is chickenpox, which fortunately we don't see very much of anymore. But those of us that were around before vaccines, we had chickenpox as a kid. We then have a latency stage where I'm sitting with chickenpox inside of me, varicella zoster, having had chickenpox as a child. And at some point in my lifetime, I am at risk of reactivation in the form of shingles or varicella zoster. Usually the onset of recurrence or the reactivation is concordant, commensurate with the onset of significant regional pain. Um, in fact, many times actually patients will report that their pain preceded any clinical change on their skin by even a couple of days. I was having this shooting pain. I went to the ER thinking I was having a heart attack down my left, I mean shooting pain down my left arm. And then they get blisters two days later. Twenty percent of the time it arises in healthy hosts, varicella zoster, approximately fifty percent of the time in immunocompromised hosts. Uh, the dermatomal distribution is pretty profound. I mean, you see the, the eruption of clustered blisters arising across an entire dermatome. Hyperesthesia and pain are almost uh, uniformly present. And I will say that with one qualifier. You know, our vaccinations have not been perfect. So uh, prior to Shingrix, we had a vaccine that offered a reduction by about 50% per year. So the incidence rate of varicella zoster in patients above the age of 65 is about 2.5% or 2.6% per year. And it reduced the rate to 1.3%. So not eradication, great reduction, but in those patients who had been vaccinated who got zoster, it tended to be less significant and the amount of pain associated with it was also less significant. Um, so I say that the pain is almost uniformly present, but the quality of pain may be much, much less than those that were previously vaccinated, but unfortunately got an incomplete vaccine. So what are the complications? Um, and again, zoster fluid is very, very contagious. So you don't want, say, someone with zoster getting in close contact with any pregnant females. That could be devastating to the fetus if the pregnant female mother 
was not immune and was to, tra to transmit zoster to her child. But uh, the complications directly of, of having zoster, you can get postherpetic neuralgia most definitely in the nerve basin uh, fed by that dermatome. Ramsey-Hunt syndrome involves the auricular canal Ophthalmic zoster, that's the Hutchinson sign when you're in the V1 distribution and it affects the tip of your nose, you must send that patient to an ophthalmologist. Um, their, their eye is at risk of having zoster. And then dissemination. You can get dissemination that's cutaneous dissemination and limited just to the skin. You can, with dissemination though, you find yourself at risk for pneumonitis, hepatitis. Again, I've got questions, you guys should be listening. Pneumatitis, hepatitis, and meningoencephalitis, ultimately with dissemination. Those are the organ systems at risk. Lungs, liver, and brain. So how do we make a diagnosis of herpes? Well, a skin biopsy. That can confirm a herpetic process, but again, doesn't distinguish between which type of herpes is present. A zinc smear in your office, if some of you have the ability to, with a stain to do a zinc, you can do that. A viral culture, that simple. You have the little test tube media that's the red cap with the fluid on the bottom, and you swab the base of the blister, always the base of the blister. A DFA, with I put a little asterisk, that's the most sensitive and specific, but not very many of us have a DFA just readily available in your back pocket in the office to use. And then there are serologies, of course. You can test someone's blood for HSV1, HSV2, and VZV, both IgM and IgG, and you can do PCR as well. So that was the cadre of types of herpes we're now going to go into, bullous impetigo and staph scalded skin syndrome. By the way, can I just get a, like, are you guys with me or am I zipping through too fast? I was trying to catch some time. <laughs> Nod heads, we're all right? Everyone can breathe? Okay, great. Bullous impetigo and staph scalded skin syndrome. So these are blistering conditions secondary to the elaboration of an exotoxin by a very specific form of staph. So not all staph aureus manufacture these exotoxins, but the type of staph aureus that does elaborate what are called exfoliotoxins A and B, and they bind to desmoglein 1. So I mentioned desmoglein-3 and desmoglein-1 when we talked about pemphigus, and those are proteins that connect keratinocytes to one another. Desmoglein-3 in non-mucosal skin is distributed, thank you, uh, from about here all the way down to the basement membrane. So in the superbasilar component of the epidermis all the way to the granular layer, but stopping at the granular layer. Mouse again, please. Thank you. So from here, tip of the arrow down. Desmoglein 1 is just right up here in the granular layer, attaching those keratinocytes to one another. So if you have a toxin that is kind of acting like the antibodies act in pemphigus, if you have a toxin that attacks desmoglein 1, you're just going to break apart that very, very superficial portion of the epidermis. The rest of the epidermis below desmoglein 1 distribution is going to remain intact. And that's what happens in bullous impetigo and staph scalded skin syndrome. This is an example of bullous impetigo. This is like the tautest you'll get a bullous impetigo blister on the nose there clinically, because usually it just ruptures very, very quickly. It's a focal bacterial infection, so the bacteria is elaborating that exotoxin just right there in the skin where the blister arises. Predominantly, this is a condition we see in neonates or in early infancy. Um, but it can occur in childhood and adulthood as well. And you see the split here, thank you, uh, at the granular layer. So you're basically almost separating the stratum corneum from the intact epidermis below. And then again, fluid and cells dying here as a secondary phenomenon of the split of the cells from one another. And staph scalded skin syndrome is the exact same exfoliotoxins delivered through the blood. So someone has an infection that's a much more uh, uh, consequential infection. They have a staph infection post-C-section, and it's intra-abdominal, and they end up with an abscess. And those exfoliotoxins get elaborated into the patient's bloodstream. Then they start to shed skin everywhere from that uh, granular layer split. So you see this almost cigarette paper-like shedding of the entirety of the skin surface in sheets. And one key component of who's at risk these exfoliotoxins, requ exfoliotoxins require renal excretion. So anyone with compromised kidney function in the adult life, renal insufficiency, acute renal failure, 
They're at risk for staph scalded skin syndrome with such infection. And young children below the age of six because their kidney maturation actually hasn't developed the ability to excrete the exfoliate toxins specifically. So young children and those that are adults with compromised kidney function. So we've gotten through autoimmune, perineoplastic, and infectious causes of blistering disorders, and now we're gonna do drug reactions. We have drug-induced bullous pemphigoid, drug-induced pemphigus, linear IgA disease, which is wholly a drug-induced phenomenon, and Stevens-Johnson TEN. So both drug-induced pemphigus and pemphigoid, interestingly enough, are usually caused by the same drug cohorts. There's probably, a, you know, this is an epigenetic phenomenon, someone sitting with, you know, a proclivity to have this reaction of autoantibody formation in the setting of a drug insult. Um, but they, they histologically and clinically look no different than either pemphigus vulgaris or bullous pemphigoid. So it's really important that when you have a new patient you, th you think has bullous pemphigoid or pemphigus, that you take a good drug history because you might be able to eliminate their drug and actually allow their condition to completely resolve. And they have no higher risk of developing de novo pemphigus or bullous pemphigoid down the road just because they happen to have drug-induced disease from whatever drug. So typically it's drugs with sulfhydryl groups, specifically penicillamine, captopril, um, and captopril in that ACE inhibitor class. They think that the drug may function as a haptin, much like we see in, say, guttate psoriasis, right, where the streptococcal antigen stimulates someone to actually manufacture the appropriate inflammatory reaction to cause psoriasiform plaques. In this scenario, it's the drug, rather than the strep bacteria, it's the drug's sequence that allows for that autoantibody production in that particular patient. Antigenic mimicry is what that's called. Um, moving on, linear IgA. Um, I say this because it's something important to know about whether you take care of inpatients or not. Um, vancomycin is something that they now give to patients at home. So they might be post knee replacement, they had a staph infection, they went into the hospital for a week, they got better enough, but they're gonna require because of their prosthesis or their heart valve, you know, six weeks of IV antibiotics and they have a nurse that comes to their home several times a week and gives them the bank. They may come into your office with blisters. Subepidermal blistering disease. These are smaller blisters than what you would see in bullous pemphigoid. Um, subepidermal in origin. And they do tend to take on some of the same features of bullous pemphigoid in that they, they are not just tense, but they're also very, very itchy. It tends to predominate on the trunk and extremities uh, and does actually have mucous membrane involvement upwards of 40% of the time. So if you see another subepidermal blistering disease in somebody currently on vancomycin or very recently having been on vancomycin, think linear IgA. So what you see on DIF, and again, you would do perilesional skin in that patient, you would get this very, very discreetly linear dis deposition of IgA, hence the name linear IgA. Uh, you see the subepidermal split. I mean, this would be indistinguishable uh, histologically from bullous pemphigoid. And yet, you can make the distinction, if you're not really sure, by doing an advanced test on salt split skin, because in this hemidesmosome, both again being subepidermal blistering diseases, bullous pemphigoid's target is right here at BP antigen 2, and the higher portion of BP antigen 2, and linear IgA targets the 97 kilodalton component, which is sitting at the very bottom of that BP antigen 2 protein, again, vertically oriented protein. Bullous pemphigoid would be here, linear IgA antigen would be there. Anyway, it's how you would differentiate the two. And if you don't know how to do that, you would call your pathologist and say, how can I differentiate the two? And they'll do what's called a salt split skin on that. And then of course, we have to consider toxic epidermal necrolysis, a very rare drug eruption arising usually within one to three weeks after administration of the first drug exposure, meaning your first pill in the sequence of pills. Uh, you can see that the incidence rate is slightly higher for Stevens-Johnson than it is TEN, but these conditions really are along a continuum. TEN has a 25 to 35% mortality. We still stink at treating TEN. I mean, it is largely supportive care. You know, there are several studies and um, you, know, you can look at any one of them and no matter how you skin the cat, no pun intended, 
you almost get an equivalent success rate to non-success rate with IVIG, with high-dose steroids, with cyclosporin, but we all feel so inclined we have to do something, so you're choosing one of them, even though even patients that get nothing sometimes will do just as well as those who get something. We haven't teased out what factors really increase the risk of mortality in TEN. So as I said, a disease continuum, Stevens-Johnson on the one hand being less than 10% of your body surface area, TEN being greater than 30%, and the overlap anywhere from 10 to 30% of body surface area. You can see that these are very flaccid blisters oftentimes that very quickly denude entirely. Why? Because of the cell death mechanism. So I told you that we can get blisters from attack of the, desmos the desmosomes, the hemidesmosomes, with antibodies, or we can get cell necrosis and death, and that causes the blistering to ensue thereafter as a phenomenon of fluid shifting to the space of least resistance. And that's what's happening here. You're getting frank cell death of the entire layer of the epidermis in TEN. This is an epidermis that literally has no structurally intact cells whatsoever. And the hypothesis is it's a phosphos ligand induced cellular apoptosis. For those of you who may remember from really very basic biology, phos and phos ligand are communicating proteins at the extracellular component and intracellular component of a given cell that literally tell a cell to die. So if you engage the phos with phos ligand, that activation induces cell death. And they believe that the drugs that are implicated in TEN do just that. They bind to phos and activate it through the phos ligand connection, a cell death mechanism. These are some images of patients with TEN. Again, extensive keratinocyte apoptosis leading to extensive epidermal sloughing, not just of the skin and the mucous membranes, but unfortunately other ectodermal surfaces from embryologic development, so the esophagus and the respiratory tract. These patients lose the ability to breathe. They need to be intubated right away. And unfortunately, they can get such esophageal sloughing that they can you know, very commonly start to vomit blood. So the most often implicated drugs in TEN are allopurinol, NSAIDs. I put in there paroxicam, not that that's the only NSAID at all, but something to think about. Sulfa, don't forget about Bactrim in your severe acne patients. Antibiotics, again, your amino penicillins and Bactrim. And anticonvulsants. Anticonvulsants can do a lot of things in the skin, which is well beyond the scope of this talk, but um, good drug history in all your patients. So now we're getting to the audience response system. Is this the right order, Matt, or do I pause first? I keep going. Great. Okay, so I have a few cases, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what your buttons look like, but I think they have made it so that my formatting now has my questions followed by my answer choices. So we'll take it from here and see how it goes. 34-year-old Hispanic male with a three-day history of fever, malaise, numerous erosions on the lips, now with a new erythematous plaques on palms. Presents to the emergency department with headache, anorexia, photophobia, and cutaneous lesions as described, as well as new red bumps in his beard. And that's literally what you get from the ED doc. He's got red bumps in his beard. Red bumps, I mean, come on. Okay, anyhow. So his past medical history is notable for HIV and diabetes. He had a distant history of a MRSA abscess, uh, surgical drainage without complications for that. Uh, his medications include the list you see here, and he has a known allergy to Bactrim. Family history is really irrelevant, no drug use. Uh, he did have a vacation from his antiretrovirals for about six months because he lost his job and didn't have any health insurance. One of the devastating things that is a secondary uh, phenomenon with our current healthcare system. Um, and he had, uh, uh, he had re just recently reinstituted his heart therapy, but just before he had had six months where he was off. These are a look at his palms uh, and his red bumps in the beard. So you find him to be febrile and tachycardic. He's ill, slow to open his eyes in the lighted room, his photophobia. And he has this extensive erosive change involving the entire lip surface, numerous well-demarcated erythematous vesicles and crusts appearing in grouped plaques. So kind of in groups, you see this group, you see a group. 
um, in the beard distribution. Trunks and, trunk and limbs were clear of any pathology, and the palms had sort of these targetoid-looking urticarial plaques with concentric rings. All right. So your most appropriate initial workup, and you can select several of these, because you're in the ED, you were called to see this patient, and you're going to start your workup. Just like with any patient, you don't just do one thing. So withdrawal of captopril, or you're going to get a CBC and a CD4 count, bacterial skin culture, a DFA of the vesicular fluid, spinal tap, skin biopsy for DIF, skin biopsy of the vesicle for histology, or an optho consult. So please select all that apply. So how did you tell me this was going to go again? Because I had options that were like, you know, B, D, E, F, you know, as one option. Or um, the green is what, so you all each did more than one, and the green is what you all hit. Okay. Well, let's go on to the answer, because uh, I don't know really how to interpret that. Most of them are not multiple answers, so this will be only something that we hit one time. All right. So he presented with herpes simplex, disseminated cutaneous herpes simplex because of his uh, lack of his antiretrovirals, herpes encephalitis, hence his photophobia, and erythema multiforme as an immunologic reaction to his herpes. So the workup would include a CBC and CD4 count because I kind of want to know what his HIV status looks like, a skin biopsy for histology to confirm whether or not this was truly herpetic in origin, because that can't tell me whether it was HSV1, 2, or VZV, I'm going to need to know what type of herpes infection it was. I want my DFA, a direct fluorescent antibody, which can tell me the type of herpes. That's from the vesicular fluid. Uh, you could have also done a viral culture of the fluid. That just takes a lot longer than your DFA for the lab. DFA is literally taking a Q-tip and swabbing the fluid and putting it on a glass slide. So if you're in the ED, they have glass slides. You can just swab it on the, fly, on the slide and down to path, and they will stain it. Uh, a spinal tap, of course, again, because you're concerned about encephalitis and your ophthalmologic examination, encephalitis and photophobia. So if the histology can determine whether herpes virus is present or not, what is the purpose of doing the DFA? So if I did a biopsy and it tells me it's herpetic, why did I need to do a DFA? This is only one answer. Great job. Yeah, so C. As I mentioned, uh, we've got somebody with a disseminated herpetic infection, and if I'm worried about what might happen as an end organ toxicity, I need to know whether it's HSV1 or 2, or whether we're talking about VZV. They have different affected organs and prognostications and complications. So great to determine uh, whether HSV1, 2, or VZV. And again, the CBC and CD4 gives us an idea of the HIV burden. The skin biopsy was to determine whether herpes was present at all, and the spinal tap to determine the extent of disease. Okay. In a different patient, the DFA from a cutaneous lesion found evidence of VZV rather than HSV. Which organ or organs are often affected in disseminated varicella zoster? And there are two answers to this question. So it's lungs and liver, so that means B and E. Great. Okay. So Many of you chose those two as your combination. Uh, patient comes in with a history of interstitial pneumonia. They're on CELSEP long term. They're doing great. And they get a zoster flare. They come into your office and they have zoster. 
you're going to put them on what they need to be on uh, and limited cutaneous zoster and counsel them about whether they start to see dissemination in their skin with or without any cough or belly pain, pulmonary involvement and liver, pain, and liver involvement. And if they actually get any signs of dissemination in their skin, they need to go into the hospital for intravenous acyclovir. They no longer should be on their oral Valtrex because of those two risks especially. Okay, pneumonitis and hepatitis does not commonly affect the other organs listed and dissemination is more common in those with underlying immunocompromised status. Okay, what end organ is most susceptible? So that patient goes home, but they call you a few days later and they say they've got blisters now everywhere and you're gonna send them to the emergency department, they get admitted for IV acyclovir. What end organ is most susceptible to IV acyclovir toxicity? One answer. Great. Kidney. Exactly. IV acyclovir not infrequently causes nephrotoxicity. Crystalline nephropathy. Case number two. We have a 64-year-old white male with a two-week history, widespread cutaneous polymorphic eruption on the face, trunk, and limbs. He has sore, crusted lips and dry red eyes. Review of systems is negative for really any constitutional symptoms. Past medical history, notable for hypertension, diabetes, epilepsy, and myasthenia gravis. Not much in family, social, or surgical history. Uh, medications you see listed there. And yes, allergy to penicillin. And this is what he looks like. Vital signs are stable. No acute distress, other than he doesn't feel very good. <laughs> Uh, hemorrhagic crusts are covering his lips, as you can see. Uh, erosions on the scalp, the face, the hands. You can almost get the appearance that there are this combination of blisters and lichenified uh, and lichenoid-looking plaques, urticarial plaques. And his skin biopsy reveals diffuse intraepidermal. So within the epidermis, there is extensive deposition with this what you would say desmosomal regions around the keratinocytes, as well as deposition of, of immunofluorescence along the basement membrane. You do a chest x-ray, and this is not normal. And I'm not a radiologist, but I can tell you that it is not normal. So which of the following factoids would you consider leading in making this diagnosis? The fact that the patient's on captopril, the patient being on Tegretol, the patient having a history of myasthenia gravis, or the patient being allergic to penicillin? One answer. The patient has myasthenia, so about 30%. So the reason for that is that this is a representation of perineoplastic pemphigus, and there is a very, very strong connection between myasthenia gravis and patients having an underlying thymoma. So we talked about those conditions by which perineoplastic pemphigus arises, uh, and thymoma is a lymphoproliferative disorder and the cause of this particular patient's perineoplastic pemphigus. We have three minutes to be on time, so we're going to keep moving. Um, and thymoma happens to be benign, as I mentioned. Okay. So which is the leading association, disease association with perineoplastic pemphigus? One answer. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, Castleman tumor, thymoma, Waldenstrom's, or CLL? Great, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 42% of the cases of perineoplastic pemphigus will be associated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Case two, answer two, there you go, non-Hodgkin's, and those are the distribution otherwise. And we're in the last case, a 54-year-old African-American female presented to the ER for evaluation of a rash. The rash was tender. She had had two days history of fever, nausea, anorexia, and malaise, and had not had anything to eat in 30 hours. She just felt too sick. 
She had a cholecystectomy a week ago, and three days ago noticed an inci her incision site to be red, tender, and draining. She used Neosporin, did not see any appreciable improvement. History, poorly controlled diabetes and hypertension. Uh, family history also uh, of di diabetes and hypertension, also with colon cancer. Medications included metformin, captopril, and metoprolol. And as I mentioned, she'd recently had a cholecystectomy. So she's febrile, she is sick. She has diffuse erythema of her face, trunk, and limbs. She has exfoliative changes, superficial blistering. Um, her mucous membranes are not involved, however. And her linear incision site on the abdomen from her cholecystectomy uh, has expressible purulent drainage. These are her labs. So notable for leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, and an elevated creatinine. She's a little acidemic and her blood sugar is not controlled. And this is her histology. You see that superficial split right under the stratum corneum in the granular cell layer only. The rest of the epidermis is intact. And what's the most probable diagnosis? Not to pressure you, I have one more minute up here, by the way. Great, staph scalded skin. The quintessential example of staph scalded skin, sparing of the mucous membranes, the exotoxin cleaves at the desmoglein one layer and the granular cell layer. And this is the last question, I think. Which of the following risk factors in this history had put her at risk for this eruption? Please select all that apply. Great, I'm glad no one chose colon cancer. Correct, so she had poorly controlled hypertension and diabetes, putting her at risk for renal compromise or underlying renal insufficiency. She then had recent NPO status, which also increased her poor creatinine clearance because she was dehydrated, and then add to that her recent surgery and the staph infection that happened secondary to that. What organ is the main factor responsible for exfoliotoxin elimination? I probably just gave you the answer. Anyone for B? Sorry, I just gave up your answer, guys. Trying to avoid the countdown. All right. So the kidney. The kidney is responsible for elimination of the exotoxin and those factors, hypertension, diabetes, being NPO, and her recent infection all put her at risk. And that's it. Thank you guys so much. I had a lot of fun being here with you. You have great questions. It's the last one I've got for you the overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Sounds good. So I think Kirk, oh, I think Kirk's going to give you all a potty break. Uh, again, I just want to say thanks so much for having me. It was a great pleasure to meet so many of you. And good luck with the rest of your travel plans home. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.